It's, uh, it's good to be here tonight to open up God's Word to us and to have a look at the next part of Romans, Romans chapter 6. Uh, Christoph's been asking quite a few interesting questions in the mornings. Uh, one of the questions he asked this morning was, what do you think about when you are trying to get to sleep at night? And for the last week and a half, for me, it's been Romans 6, Romans 6, Romans 6. And uh, I don't know about you whenever you read letters. I, I usually write letters like, uh, like, weather hot, almost as hot as Jane, wish you were here. That is my normal style of letter. And uh, whenever I read Romans, uh, I very often get a little bit bamboozled going through it. I do find it very... Uh, tricky sometimes looking at Paul's extensive arguments. So spending time looking through what it had to say, it's been a good, good exercise for me. And hopefully, as we look that through together, you will uh, benefit from some of the stuff that, uh, that I've been reading and thinking through. Well, last Sunday night, David opened up chapter 5, and we saw that Paul is consolidating everything that he has been debating and teaching. His core message is that just as sin entered the world through one man, who was Adam, and through sin, death came, so through one man, Jesus Christ, God's grace would come. God's grace flows from the death and resurrection of Jesus, so we can be made righteous. And that's where David left us, and that's where we're picking up the story today. Uh, I don't know if you've uh, read in any of the, uh, the commentaries or any of the, the book reviews over the last couple of weeks. There's been a lot of uh, focus and a real storm of controversy raging, especially in the American media, over a book called The Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mom. It's a new book chronicling the parenting strategy of ambitious Chinese-American mothers. And the book is written by Amy Chua. And in her book, she outlines how she brings up her own two daughters, never accepting a grade lower than an A grade, insisting on hours and hours of maths and spelling drills, piano and violin practice every day, weekends and holidays including, uh, not allowing any playdates or sleepovers or television or computer games or even school plays. Now, the response has left many readers outraged, but also feeling quite defensive. The Tiger Mom's Cubs are being raised to rule the world. The book clearly implies that the Western way of bringing up kids gives weak-willed, indulgent children who are ill-equipped to compete in a fierce global marketplace. Amy Chua's strategy of accepting nothing lower than perfection from her own kids and reigning over their lives ruthlessly in order to shape them into world-beating adults that one day she believes they will turn out to be. And she goes on to compare her own strategy with a free-spirit, liberal, often hands-off approach to parenting that she observes in many of her American counterparts. She says she's shocked and horrified at how much time Western kids are allowed to waste, hours on Facebook computer games, spending longer in front of the TV than in school, and how this leaves them so poorly prepared for the future. And it's been a real hot, raging debate in lots of chat shows and commentary shows in America. The strict rule of law, 
or the no limits freedom to find your own way. Well, in many ways, this is exactly the debate that Paul is confronting in this section of Romans. The difference is, however, that in the words of the short butcher trying to get the meat from the top shelf, the stakes are so much higher. He is confronting head-on two natural human solutions to get right with God. Being ruled by law versus absolute freedom from the law to live as we please. In the opening chapters of Romans, Paul has established the law can never be fulfilled by anything we try. All have sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard. But Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. His death has made a means of grace to make those who accept him by faith to be made right, to be made clean and acceptable to God. So what about a life lived in total freedom then? A life lived in the absolute grace that God gives to sinners who come to a new life in the relationship with his son. Can we live as we like, free from the shackles of the law? What shall we say then, as Paul writes? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Well, it's hard to imagine a Christian living in such a blatantly presumptuous way. But some in the past have done exactly this. You probably know the classic Boney M song, uh, Ra Ra Rasputin, I'll not sing it, uh, Russia's favorite love machine. Well, he actually existed. He was a very influential monk and an advisor to the family of the last Tsar of Russia. And Rasputin spoke of salvation not depending on the clergy or what the church said, but rather what the Spirit of God was doing within. That sounds okay, but this is what he then maintained. He maintained that sin and repentance were interdependent and necessary to salvation. And he claimed that yielding to temptation, and for him personally this this meant sex and alcohol, that was needed to produce repentance and salvation. Achieving divine grace was achieved through the sins of drunkenness and sexual promiscuity. And that was one of the central secret doctrines which Rasputin preached to and practiced with his inner circle of society ladies. Now, it's a shocking thing to think of a child of God behaving in this way. And for Paul, it was equally shocking. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Could we ever fall into this totally flawed and ungrateful pattern of living? Well, maybe not as blatantly as for a sputin who espoused it. But is there a bit of this taking grace for granted in the attitude of liberality in our modern enlightened lifestyles. A Friday night spent in watching films where sex is casual, language is profane, and God's kingdom is hard to identify. A night out with your mates where drinking becomes the focus and alcohol blurs our senses and self-control. 
coffee breaks with the girls or fellows where relationships are compromised through gossip and coarse joking. A session on the net that ends up in the adult pages fueling lust and taking our minds away from what is good and upright and pure. A preoccupation with getting more and bigger and latest and trendy and credible. Meanwhile, nothing being focused on the people in crisis on our local and global doorsteps. Are these sins that are indulged and not taken seriously because we know that we are under grace, because we know that Jesus loves us? Well, Paul is quite clear. By no means. Wise up. Catch yourself on, fella. Catch yourself on, girls. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So, if we aren't to live as slaves to law, and clearly we're not to live as if we're slaves to sin either, how can we live in a way that pleases God and is achievable by normal Christian men and women? Well, Paul is a realist. He's a normal guy who seems to struggle just as much as we do trying to walk this line of freedom in Christ. And in chapter 7, which we'll go on to the next few weeks, he says, when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. So Paul isn't even doing the thing that he is espousing here. So what is it that he is equipping us with in his writing to help us through this problem? Well, that's what he does in chapter three, verse, or chapter 6, verse 3 to 10. He outlines the truth of our status as followers of Jesus as a result of what he's done in dying and being resurrected. He also outlines the practicalities of living in the light of this truth. And that's what we're going to spend a bit of time now doing, looking through what Paul says in verses uh, 3 to 10 in terms of the advice to help us walk this line. The first focus, the first theme that he has in these verses is this. In order for there to be a resurrection, there must first be a death. Our death is repeatedly talked about. In verse 2, we died to sin, a clean break from the reign of sin, no longer slaves to sin. In verse 6, for we know that our old self was crucified with him. In verse 8, now if we died with Christ. In verse 11, count yourselves dead to sin. This is our death that Paul keeps on talking about. We died to sin if we are a Christian. A relationship with sin that has been broken. A clean break from the reign of sin, no longer slaves to sin. Sin is no longer our master. Now, it's important that Paul to, to recognize that Paul is not teaching perfectionism. No longer slaves to sin does not mean that we are no longer sinners. It's impossible to achieve a state of absolute holiness. We can't do it. There's nothing that we can try that will help us to be perfect. We can't do it. If we try harder, get baptized in certain ways, 
get baptized with the Holy Spirit, learn more scripture, pray more, speaking, uh, speak in tongues. Perfection is not achievable by anyone in this world. Paul says, the old nature that is still inside me loves to sin. What Paul is doing, rather than preaching perfectionism, is focusing our minds on our union with Christ through faith. He says, sin used to exercise a tyranny over us, but through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have been set free from this and are being united with Christ through faith. Our old self is as dead as Jesus was when he died on the cross. What was crucified with Christ was not a part of me called my old nature, but it was the whole of me as I was before I became a Christian. So I died to sin when I accepted Jesus as my rescuer and my ruler when I became a Christian. That's why Paul has this whole link to baptism in verses 3 to 4. All of us who were baptized into Jesus, Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. And verse 4, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Baptism is the outward sign of becoming a Christian, a symbolic action taken by people who have come into a life-changing relationship with Jesus. It demonstrates the death and burial of the old self and the rebirth into Christ and into his family. We are united to Christ in his death. We are also united to Christ in his burial. This has already happened to us if we are Christians. The old self that lived for myself and for sin is finished. And anyone who is in Christ is a new creation, no longer under the rule of sin, justified and forgiven and glorified, assured of heaven. So we will never be sinless, but we are equipped by the death and resurrection of Jesus and his glorification, and we are equipped to sin less. So we'll never be sinless, but because of the work of Jesus in our lives, we are equipped to sin less. Now the second theme that Paul is looking at is that in order for there to be a new life, a resurrection must occur. So, looking at verse 4 again, just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And in verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Jesus was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. The glory of God is also the source of of our rebirth into his kingdom. It is a supernatural rebirth, not some internalized decision or resolution that we can make. You don't decide that we are going to be reborn just like we might decide to quit smoking or I must exercise more or I must go to the gym or I must watch less TV. 
It's not like that. This is a supernatural rebirth from God himself. The resurrection of Jesus is the final proof of his victory over all our enemies, sin and death. When verse 5 says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will also be united with him in a resurrection like his. It's not just talking about a final resurrection when Jesus takes us to be with him in heaven. It is offering us a way of dealing with sin right here and right now. This is the whole point of chapter 6. Not trying to explain why things are going wrong, rather than outline how to put them right. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. The death of Jesus is a complete and finished victory. He is alive to God forevermore, and we are alive in him. We're going to move on in the passage now to verses 11 to 14. This is what they say. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. We need to demonstrate this doctrine of a new life in a new lifestyle, worked out in practical Christian living. In verse 11, there's a critical connection. Count yourselves, to de- count yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. What does count yourself mean? Is it wishful thinking? Is it trying to believe strongly enough so that it actually happens in practice? Well, no, it's not. It must be more than just hoping for the best. Count yourselves dead to sin is an active instruction. Paul is encouraging us to reckon ourselves to be living in a new realm, a spiritual place in the sun, a relocation relocation into the kingdom of God, an escape to the country of alive to God. The Holy Spirit is alive and working in each of us, to make my and your dearly experience to increasingly become what we already are in Christ and what we fully will be in the resurrection life. Paul says, count yourselves alive to God. Alive to the blessings of God. Count yourselves alive to all his gracious purposes. Alive to be holy, alive to be blameless. Count yourself alive in a real acceptance and fellowship between us and the creator of the universe. Count yourself alive like a branch 
you are that branch grafted onto the vine, joined to Jesus, producing the fruit of his character. Count yourself alive, not to be hungry or thirsty, because he is our bread and water of life. Being a Christian, we are secure in this truth that because Jesus now lives forever in unbroken fellowship with God, we share in this gift because of the state of grace we are in. We cannot ping pong in and out of grace. We are either in Christ as Christians or we are not in Christ. Cannot ping pong between the two. We don't need to be hopeless in resignation that sin will never disappear out of our lives either. We don't need to ask ourselves every day that we sin, am I really a Christian? Because we are in Christ. We don't need to keep worrying if I keep on sinning, I mustn't be a child of God because we are in Christ. Verses 12 and 13 then. This is where Paul again starts to get a bit practical. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Now, Paul presents two negatives and two positive features in these verses. The negatives are, don't let sin reign in your body and don't offer any part of yourself to sin. But the positives are, offer yourselves to God and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. My role as a Christian is not to let sin take the reins in the way that my life is. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Now this means that there's a struggle, a battle going on, and I have to play my part in that battle. It means that becoming godly It's not something that God is going to do for me if I lie back and just let it happen. Equally, it's not some prepackaged blessing that floats down onto me while I'm sleeping in my bed. Nor is Paul saying that there will be a once and for all victory in the here and now in our bodies because our lives here and now are the battlefields where sin is trying to get a foothold trying to turn its function into evil desires if it possibly can. Paul never says that sin is dead to us. But he does say that we died to sin. One of the most gruesomely popular videos that I show in my biology classes is a video called Body Snatchers. It's a gruesome documentary about parasites with fabulous soundtracks like Stuck on You and I've Got You Under My Skin going on, as you have images of people returning from exotic holidays, from Malayal, 
from Uganda, from all these wild places that people decide to go to nowadays, and they return home to the UK with unwelcome uh, visitors living in them, worms, nematodes, maggots, leeches, louses, viruses, etc. Kids love it, but they hate it as well. Uh, these little visitors remain in the bloodstream, and you have the images of them popping out and showing their ugly side in a regular way as the lives of the people that have them are followed. Now, as tr try as they do very often to apply treatments and keep them under control, many of them keep resurfacing. Now, it's a bit of an analogous situation with sin in our lives. We think it's under control, but it can keep resurfacing, causing disappointment, a sense of failure. The virus of sin is always going to be there in our mortal bodies. But our hope is that the virus of sin will one day be destroyed for good when we are resurrected and transformed into the likeness of Christ. And in the meantime, how do we deal with this virus of sin? How do we make sure that it is not reigning in us? We have this responsibility not to offer any part of ourselves to sin as an instrument of, weak, of wickedness. The physical body and its faculties, our sight, our speech, our movement, where we go, what we do, what we look at, what resides in our minds, in our thinking, in our wills, in our imagination, in our fantasy, in our desires to be top dog, to dominate others. Paul says, don't offer or put at the disposal of sin any of these aspects of our lives. Do Christoph's checks that he was espousing this morning in response to the first commandment. Now, those are the negatives, but what about the positives? How can I start putting this holiness into practice? We have now come to God, we have now to come to God day by day and offer our faculties to be used at his disposal. Holiness is not introspective. It's not us feeling that we're good enough or not good enough. We never or rarely ever do. And it's not meant to be that we're continually looking in at ourselves and assessing our own godliness or that of others. Rather, holiness is serving the risen Lord with all of our beings, a cause much bigger than ourselves, serving the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We need to be giving everything that God has given us, offer every part of ourselves to him as an instrument of righteousness, offering it back into his hands, saying, Lord, Today, look through my eyes. You govern what I see. As we get up in the morning saying, Lord, guard my feet where they go. Lord, speak through my lips. Use them to build up and encourage. Lord, today, use my hands. Use them to help others. If this is the day-by-day -day focus we adopt for our lives, then holiness starts to grow in an organic and natural way. 
There's no way that we will want to keep on sinning. We need to recognize what Christ has done, what he's already done for me. Open myself up to receive his grace on a daily basis, to use money, time, personality, skills, capabilities for him as instruments of righteousness. Defining holiness as serving God. Finally, in verse 14, it says, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. To see ourselves as we really are in Christ, we can know increasing godliness because we are in a new place. Not ruled by a tyrant of merciless law, like a tiger mom who judges us and consistently accuses us of not living up to the required standard. Fellow believers, we are in a new state. We have new life in Christ under the rule of a gracious rescuer who has risen in power and shared his everlasting life with us here and now. So sin is no longer our master. We are made holy and are becoming increasingly holy as we count ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. John Newton, the 18th century ex-slave trader and writer of Amazing Grace, he knew this state and shared in the same journey as we are on. And this is what he wrote. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be. But by the grace of God... I am not what I was. In a quote from C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what God's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. Things that you knew were needing to be done so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he builds a very different house to the one that you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, butting in an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought... You were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. And he intends to come and live in it himself. We are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. And are by his grace becoming holy. A palace where Jesus lives. A light shining in a dark world that we live in. The stakes are higher than the top job that
that tiger moms are seeking to prepare their cubs for. The stakes are our enjoyment of being God's child. Bringing glory to him and blessing to the world that we live in. I'm just going to think about some of those aspects of things that we are presented with in Romans 6. Just looking or listening to the words of a song. And I apologize, I'm taking you back to my 1980s Christian music collection here. So uh, we are going to delve into the, the past that was Amy Grant. And we're going to listen to a song that she sums up some of these ideas with. So as we finish and focus on what Paul has been saying to us, let's just let our minds dwell on that. And let's let God speak into our personal lives.
Uh, we're going to finish our service in the singing of a tremendous hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. <laughs>